asked two teenagers to come in to share their hearts through prayer and reading God's word together. And so this evening, I've asked Jeremy Pierce to come, and he's going to read from Romans chapter 8. And so if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, and he'll read in a little bit. And then Emma Potter, and she'll read a portion of Romans chapter 9. So thank you so much for coming tonight. I trust that you're doing well. It's a joy to fellowship together over Zoom Room and all the opportunities that we have as a church family in today's coronavirus age. But I can't wait, just like you, to see each other face to face. As Pastor said this morning, there's something about the face. And even seeing each other in a parking lot, uh, I, I tend to, to cry anyway or tear. And it, it brought tears to my eyes just seeing your faces. And so it will be a sweet day when we see each other. And it will be a sweet day when we see the Lord. But at this time, I'll ask Jeremy to come. And then after that, Emma will come. Hello. I uh, love and miss you guys. And Pastor Steve asked me to pray really quick. So I'm going to start with that. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we uh, have this time to meet electronically, even though we can't meet physically. I ask you to keep us all safe through this coronavirus, if it's your will. Um, help us to stay safe spiritually and physically, both from the coronavirus and other illnesses, and help us to stay strong in your word. And also, I pray for opportunities through this time, um, whether we still have work or we're just at home with our neighbors or online with our unsaved friends and family, I say it would help us to be bold and wise with those opportunities that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Pastor Steve asked me to share something from my Bible reading. So, sorry, just a second. So I've read James 1. I just started that, like, on Monday. So the first paragraph is, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, I read that the other day. Um, just one second. I'm sorry. All right, so, I was thinking about it, um, if I was being joyful during this trial, because we're all going through a trial right now, with the coronavirus, whether we're out of work or unable to see our church family as a trial. So I was thinking, am I being joyful through this? Um, and also, if uh, I was building, so with endurance, I looked up with that meant, if you don't know me, I'm an endurance runner. I do cross country and track. So I was thinking, um, I mean, I talk about I'm an endurance runner a lot. I thought that was kind of cool. So I looked up what the word meant to get an actual definition. And it said strength. Uh, strength not being able to move or not moving lightly and I was thinking this is talking about spiritual endurance so it's not being easily knocked away from our faith and that just kind of struck me right now like am I working to build a closer relationship with God right now am I using the extra time that I have at home to uh, read the Bible more pray more and that was just convicting to me so that's why I've been learning my Bible reading recently and then also Pastor Steve asked me to read Romans 8 it is Romans 8 18 through 25 so just one second So, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I love and miss you guys, and I hope to see you soon. Hi, I'm going to read Romans 9, 15 through 23. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will, no, will not stay to the molder. Why did you make me like this, will it? Or will or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make and form the same lump at one vessel for honorable use and another for the common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured, much, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did, so, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of his mercy, which he prepared before the glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can come together and learn more about you through this online method. Um, I thank you that Pastor Steve is willing to come here and help us learn more about you, even though we're all at home. And I thank you for his witness he's had on us teens at home through the Zoom calls on Sunday and Wednesdays. And I thank you for our church family. I thank you that we are all um, witnessing to each other and um, have the ability to witness to others through this time, Lord. Um, I pray for um, the Mr. the Major family. I pray that you would help Mr. Major's chemo to continue to go well, and I pray that you would help his family encourage him and be there for him through this time. I also pray for um, some illnesses such as Mrs. Bear, Mrs. Lawrence, and Miss Claire. I pray that um, you would be there with them, as I know it's hard to go through an illness at this time, considering um, the, the threat of corona, Lord. Um, I pray that you would also be with Mr. and Mrs. Jackson. I pray that you would calm his heart, and um, I pray that we would be um, a good comfort to Mrs. Jackson's as it is um, hard to go through this, Lord. And I thank you for the witness that they've had in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. Miss you guys. Wow. They did an incredible job. It is not, <clears throat> excuse me, easy at all to just stare at a blank screen and be yourself, especially when it's live. And so thank you so much, Jeremy and Emma. I'm going to look off camera. I miss you guys very much. We love you. And uh, go home safely to, their, to your families now. And uh, we all had an opportunity to stay safely apart. And I don't think they touched anything that I touched. So uh, wash your hands, guys. Okay? All right. Well, let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to Luke chapter 7. We had an opportunity to read a little bit from Romans chapter 8, 
in Romans chapter 9, and I think it'll become apparent as to why I asked the teenagers to do that in just a little bit. But our text, as we continue on in our journey through Luke, is Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Uh, it, is a, it is a longer passage, uh, but we're going to look at it from more of a devotional perspective tonight. So hopefully I will not preach too long, because I know I've pretty much already lost my little family at home. And I know if your homes are just like mine, uh, the shorter the better. So Romans chapter 7, verse 18 Luke says, The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expectant one, or did we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, their sight. The lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, Jesus says. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet, who, yet he who is, at, is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And the narrative continues on a little bit longer, and and we will look at some of those verses in a little bit more of, a, of brevity, of, of a brief detail. But I know that's a longer time to read, uh, and so I wanted to stop there tonight. But essentially, we have an interesting thing here in Luke chapter 7. In fact, it's so interesting that uh, commentators don't agree. There's, there's at least five or six major positions on what in the world is going on with John the Baptist and his faith towards Jesus Christ. Uh, but I think it's relatively plain spoken tonight, and we see uh, the reality of John's faith in, in, uh, repeated, really, in, in verse 19 and verse 20, and we'll get to that in a second. But before we ask the question tonight of this passage, I want you to consider this. Faith is a curious thing. What do I mean by that? It is not measured by mere strength, faith but it is displayed by humble determination. So there's a, a fable that I loved growing up, and, uh, and it's called The Tree and the Reed by Asaph. And it goes like this. The tree says, Well, little one, said a tree to a reed that was growing at its foot, why do you not plant your feet deeply in the ground and raise your head boldly in the air as I do. The reed says, I am content with my lot. 
I may not be so grand, but I think I am safer. Safe, sneered the tree. Who shall pluck me up by the roots or bow my head to the ground? But it soon had to repent of its boasting, for a storm arose which tore it up from its roots and cast its useless log on the ground, while the little reed, bending to the force of the wind, soon stood upright again when the storm had passed over. I think that little reed pictures, for me at least, what it means to have faith. Faith is not necessarily measured in brute strength, but it is measured in malleableness. It is measured in moldability. It is measured in, in increments of change, isn't it? And in our text before us, we see the greatness of John the Baptist contrasted with the greatness of John's doubt. And no doubt, Scripture over and over again gives us example after example of, of great men like Peter. We're coming just off the resurrection and, and, and Peter doubting his Savior. And so here we have the same issue in, John, in Luke chapter 7. And we learn that our circumstances may change and challenge our faith. But through, though Christ may be silent, he, uh, excuse me, though, though it may seem that Christ is silent, he is not silent about our faith. And so here in Luke chapter 7, we have, we have John really asking the question, questioning Jesus, questioning, is Jesus the one whom he claimed to be? In verse 19, we see the, the repetition of this. Um, verse 19 says, Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And then in verse 20 again, When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you asking, Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? The repetition is key here. It is glaring. And it squarely lays the, the doubt, if you will, if, if we want to play the, the blame game like we do at home, it squarely lays the blame of doubt in John's feet. John's the one who asks. John's the one who sends his disciples. But surely we would say, why would John be doubting Jesus? And, and, and that question rings pretty true because many commentators, as I mentioned, have a problem seeing John doubt Jesus. I mean, surely John baptized Jesus. John saw Jesus for everything that he is. And, and now, just barely into Jesus' ministry, John is doubting who Jesus is. He's doubting his, his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Surely he saw Jesus' miracles. Why would John doubt him? I mean, in this very, very same chapter, John uh, hears of Jesus raising the widow's son and healing the centurion's servant. And in chapter 6, he healed and he cast out demons and he healed the man remembered with the withered hand. And John, excuse me, in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, he hears a paralytic and, and a leper. And John, John saw the miracles and they were reported back to him. 
And why, why were they reported back to him? Well, here's the next clue. And it gives us a little detail about John's circumstances, a detail that, that uh, God, the Gospel of Matthew gives for us. But in verse 19, John had to summon two of his disciples. He had to summon them because John was locked away in an impregnable, impregnable prison right, built by Herod, a fortress. And he was not able to uh, leave, and he had certainly uh, death facing him in this dark dungeon of a prison. And so his circumstances are causing him to doubt, quite simply. He's human, just like you, just like me. And our circumstances get the better of us. Our circumstances overwhelm us. We are facing as a nation, and quite frankly as a world, circumstances that are sinking some and causing others to doubt. Was he doubting? What was he doubting about Jesus? Well, it wasn't Jesus' miracles. Those were being reported back to him. And in verse 18, that's very clear. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. What are all these things? Well, just look at the context up ahead and above. And, and it's Luke's accounts of, of the raising of the widow's son, of the healing of the centurion, of the healing of the withered uh, hand, the man of the withered hand, of, of, of healing the, uh, uh, the, the lame, the paralytic. And so John knows these miracles. He's been given trustworthy accounts of them. John wasn't doubting Jesus' miracles, and he wasn't doubting Jesus' power. He could raise people from the dead, after all, in Luke chapter 7. And quite frankly, he wasn't doubting Jesus' trustworthiness either. Think about it. Who is John asking in the text? He sends his disciples to ask who? Jesus. So John trusted Jesus. Because why in the world would John ask someone if he didn't trust them about themselves, ask someone about themselves if he didn't trust them. It's kind of like an IRS agent or, or someone claiming to be an IRS agent calling the Sindelar home and saying, Mr. Sindelar, yes, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. I am so-and-so from the IRS and I just, I just want you to know, I, I, you probably noticed you didn't get your, your coronavirus stimulus check yet. And I wanted to make sure that uh, we got it to you as quickly and as soon as possible, but we have a, we have a problem with your, with your bank account information. And so if you would just verify your last four of your social security number and, and your bank account information, we'll make sure, and make sure, please, to use the bank account that you use with your, with your uh, 2019 or 2018 tax return. But, but please, would you share that with me? And, and if I trust this person and, and assume that he's a trustworthy individual on the other side of the phone, I may say something like, okay, do I give that information to you? Do I give that to someone else that you'll put me through on the line? Um, I'll ask that question. Right? But if I don't trust that person, what's the last question I'm going to ask him? Are you really an IRS agent? Why? Because of course, right? Yeah, sure. Of 
course I'm an IRS agent. So John here asks Jesus because he trusts Jesus. So John doesn't doubt that Jesus is trustworthy. So then what in the world is John doubting? What in the world is John doubting? Well, it's really repeated twice in 19 and 20. And that is everything to do with John's question. Are you the expected one? Literally in the Greek, are you, that's the word ergamai, are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? If you'll take your Bibles and go a few pages back to Luke chapter 3, this will help us understand what John really means here. This is, this is really an Old Testament term. And John brings it up in uh, Luke chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 17, when John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquestionable, unquestionable fire. So what is John saying? Well, John said, the one who is coming is mightier. He's stronger. He's not, I'm not fit to untie his sandal. He's, he's higher. He's, more, he's of more royal descent. John also says he's pure. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But John also says that he is coming. That's the same word, ergamai. It's the same word in Luke verse 17, uh, verse 7, cha uh, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. He is coming with a winnowing fork to take the chaff and the weed and to separate it from the barn floor. And to judge the chaff and to, and, to, and to gather the wheat until its rightful place. He is coming as a judge. That was the Old Testament expectation of the coming one. And so John is sitting in a prison cell. Looking out the windows if he even had them. And he is wondering where the Messiah, the coming one, is exercising the rightful judgment that he has. The coming one. In John's mind, the coming one was to set everything that was wrong right again. John isn't questioning Jesus' authenticity his trustworthiness, his power, his ability to do miracles. John is questioning Jesus' purpose. Where in the world Jesus is the judgment? Where in the world is it? You know, if, if, we, if we're on the right side of judgment... That's not a hard question to ask, is it? But if we're on the wrong side of judgment, if we're on the judgment side of judgment, if you will, that question is not one you ask. You know, I was doing some reading and 
it's apparent that uh, most of the courts in, in our nation are closed right now. And so think about the ramifications of all those families that are waiting for justice because of a, of a loved one's gone now because of a murder. Think about the ramifications of, of those who are waiting for justice to vindicate abuse and to stop it. If you're on the right side of justice, judgment, justice can't come soon enough. And there's been trials in the past that have gone on years, absolute years, and you just, you just feel for those families that have to sit there, the families of the victim who have to sit there and, and wait and watch someone <clears throat> mock them time and time again in court after taking their loved one away. And so John is wondering where, Jesus, is your judgment? Where is it? Where is the separation of the chaff and the wheat? And some of us are asking the very same question. Some of us have the very same tension that John does. We are sitting in our prison cells. Cells of our own body. Think of Mr. Jackson. Mr. Major. Others that pastor mentioned this morning, Marie Williams, Pat Badig, Donna Moses, and, and the list goes on and on. And those whom you love, we love, that we have lost to cancer, and we're sitting there, and we are frustrated. Jesus, where is the judgment, the coming one? Where is it? We long for it. Some of us are going through job, jobless lists right now, and transitions and some of us are feeling the antagonism from our families because of our faith and, and hatred from those who love us. Some of us are working with hard-hearted children and teenagers that, that we've invested and we've loved and sure we haven't been perfect parents but my goodness they don't understand how much we love them and how much their actions are grieving the agony of parents, the agony of, of loving friends and family members and neighbors unto sharing the gospel with them, only for them to, to brush it aside or, or for them to even make fun of it. And so we have pain and suffering, abuse and neglect, and we are wondering, Jesus, where, where is the rightful judgment? Why are our circumstances how they are? No doubt, no doubt, that will ring true, that question, that tension for all of us. And if you'll go back to Romans chapter 8 and, and just hear what Jeremy read, that the, that the creation is groaning, longing for this judgment, longing for everything that is wrong to be made right. That is true in each and every one of us, Romans chapter 8, and then going into Romans chapter 9 says, every single believer feels that same tension, that everything that is wrong needs to be made right, and when will that 
happened. My goodness. But Romans chapter 9 also reminds us that through this suffering, God's mighty sovereign hand is present and there, and he is working salvation through this. And so we have this question, Jesus, where is your purpose? Where is your coming? Where is everything going to be made wrong to right? When is that going to happen? And then we have Jesus' answer. We have very much Jesus' answer. But it isn't the answer that we maybe want to hear or as clearly as we want to hear it. But it's there. Look at verse 21. At that very time, John just asked the question, where are you? (laughs) Where's your purpose? And Luke records for us, not words, but actions. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And then he answered John's disciples, and he said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You may ask, Where was Jesus' answer to John? He just continued doing what it was he was doing prior to John's disciples coming and asking Jesus. Jesus' question was not what, what theologians would call propositional. It wasn't yes or no. Jesus didn't stand up like he did in the temple in John chapter 7 into John chapter 8 over, during the Passover when the temple is just packed with people totally no social distancing going on there over, during the Passover and he stands up with a loud voice and he cries out if anyone thirsts come to me and you will thirst no longer the very image of the Old Testament reality the picture of salvation, the picture that God himself would provide for his people. He doesn't do that at this point in John's journey of faith, but he heals. He heals. That's the primary emphasis. And that's really what Jesus had been doing all along. He doesn't say yes, but he does demonstrate his ability to make the wrong right, doesn't he? The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute talk, the dead raise from the grave and walk. There is newness of life, and that is the root of every single miracle. Jesus is demonstrating that he can make all the wrong 
ever so right. And these miracles, John would have known this, are messianic signs. If, if he was thinking and reading through Isaiah, these would have all been very clear markers along the way that Jesus is the coming one, that he is the Messiah. And so the Old Testament Jews saw the coming one as final time of judgment, making the wrong right. But Jesus didn't come this time to judge. The Jew didn't really understand. They didn't have a, 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 a bifold uh, uh, concept of Jesus' coming. The Jew thought the Messiah would come, and that was it. But it is at this point that we find out that that is not true. That Jesus has more to do and his purpose isn't final judgment yet. His purpose is to save those from their sin. And aren't we so glad for that? Aren't we glad for the book of Galatians and the book of Romans and, and the book of Ephesians that, that rolls out for us this beautiful reality that that. God is not done and that he is the God of the Gentile just like he's the God of the Jew. In fact, as we read in Romans chapter 9 as Emma read for us, that he, is, he, is, he has the divine responsibility and sovereignty to mold as he will, choosing what lumps of clay he will use for what purposes. And this all demonstrates his mercy and his grace and his profound love to you and to me. And aren't we glad for that? Can I understand all of the implications of those passages? Absolutely not, but I don't care to because God is the God of heaven, not me. Can I understand why, why or could John understand why, why Jesus did not come for the express, purpose, the express purpose that John thought Jesus came for? That is to make everything that was wrong right, right now. No, John couldn't understand that. But how does John respond? Well, Jesus tells him how to respond. In verse 23, he, sees, he says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's a beatitude with a warning right there. Blessed right, is he. But there's a warning in there. Who does not take offense at me. For those who come on the right side of Jesus' judgment and accept him, there is blessing. But for those who walk their own way, who want their own way, who do their own thing, they are on the other side of, of, of Jesus' winnowing fork, Luke chapter 3. They are the chaff that will be brushed aside and burnt up and blown into the wind never to never to roam again never to not that I'm not never to exist again not that they're going to be annihilated but but in, in terms of life and in purpose and so those who submit to the purposes of Jesus are described here in verses 24 and 27 when the messengers of John had left he began to speak to the crowds about John. 
What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. You were expecting people in royal palaces? No. No, he indeed, verse 26, was a prophet. Verse 27, I, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. In verse 28, I say to you, Jesus says, Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And that's really, I think, if we were to divide, John the Baptist is a transitionary figure for us in our testaments. And if we were to divide the testaments into two, John's kind of right in the middle. And Jesus is saying, as far as the Old Testament and the Old Testament people are concerned, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. <laughs> He's the best, greatest prophet that ever came. Because he prepared the way for Jesus. But it's very much the, true in, in the same sense. This, the second part of this verse, verse 28, and we have to reconcile it together. This is, this is really moving now into the New Testament era, into the church age that will come in, in redemptive history a little longer, a little later uh, in, 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 in history, in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. But he says, yet... He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, is greater than John the Baptist. He who is least in Jesus' kingdom. And so those who submit to Jesus' purpose have a great calling. They have a great blessing. They have a great position. They, they have a great worth. And they are, they are on the scales. And there's nothing that compares to them. John was on the scale, if you will. And, and from an Old Testament perspective, he was weighted. He was the greatest. But when the calibration of the scale is changed, it's kind of like when you go to the gas station and you see that county auditor a sticker that's been punch, punched with the date saying that this, this fuel pump has been inspected and it is putting out the right amount of gallon per click. So you can be sure that if you're being charged, you're getting the right amount of gallon. Boy, could you imagine if you were to, to let some uh, gas store, store owners uh, calibrate their own machines? Oh, we only give them a half a tank per, right? And, and that would get pretty costly. Well, John is on the scale, if you will, and he is weighted from an Old Testament perspective. But then the scale is recalibrated now that Jesus has come and he is, he is, he is moving us into the church age and the, the, the scale is recalibrated. And now God's people in the church that will come are, are far greater, the least of them greater than John the Baptist. Boy, what a privileged position that we have if we're on the right side of Jesus' judgment. But those who reject the purpose, verse 30, are the Pharisees and the lawyers. In fact, it is ex explicitly stated here, in verse 30, isn't it? Luke says, but the Pharisee, the lawyer, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, which means they rejected God's purpose for them, not having been baptized by John. 
And then it then just goes on to explain what it's like to be someone who rejects Jesus, who rejects Jesus' purpose. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? And he's really speaking of the Pharisees. He's holding them up. They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. They're spoiled little brats having nothing better to do but whine and complain about silliness. When I read this, I immediately thought of one of my most favorite movies. And this will just let you in on a little secret of why I'm so weird and not very smart. Okay. It's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not the new one. All right, I think I've seen the new one. You can't do the weirdness and the just the odd nature of the old classic Willy Wonka and the, uh, the Chocolate Factory. And in that, you've got, this, you've got these kids. You've got Charlie, and everyone loves Charlie and the Golden Ticket. But you've got these kids... These spoiled brats, and boy, don't they just seem like... Anyway, you want to take them <laughs> and you want to do something with them. And really, the story does, doesn't it? You've got, you've got Augustus, right? Augustus Gloop. What a last name. And, you know, that, that German kid, right? And, and uh, he's a big, round, gluttonous guy, and, and he's just indulging himself. And what does he do? He just... He just goes all over the place and he can't help himself and he ends up falling into the chocolate river getting sucked up the tube and I won't say it because I'm not speaking to teenagers plopped out of the tube into, into fudge into the fudge room and he's off the scene and then you have you have gum chewing Violet you remember her she doesn't listen to anything anything at all and she she's warned by Willy Wonka and not to eat this this amazing three or five course you know bubblegum meal and and she starts to eat it and it 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 changes her and she turns into this 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 giant blueberry and she floats away and and she has to go get squeezed out before she pops right well that's enough that's Charlie in the chocolate factory and and that's really, quite frankly, the silliness and the, and the stupidity of the religious leaders of the day. That they were sitting around playing their flute and weeping that they did not dance. And John the Baptist comes. And they look at John. And they criticize him. And they say, he doesn't eat bread and he doesn't drink wine and he must have a demon. And then they look at Jesus, the Son of Man, in verse 34, and they say... Uh, he is coming, eating and drinking. And Jesus says, Behold, you say, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, if you don't eat, you're crucified. If you do eat, you're crucified, quite literally. My friends, they weren't reasonable. They weren't reasonable because they didn't want Jesus' purpose. They found fault with John. They found fault with Jesus. And no one could measure up to what they wanted. 
And maybe you're listening tonight and you have maybe a skeptical view of, of Jesus and of the Bible. Can I just encourage you? Know that Jesus is not portrayed in the Bible as an IRS agent or at least a supposed IRS agent that calls and you don't know if you can ask him the question and get a, get a true response. Even John, in his doubt, trusts the Son of God and asks him. And he asks him, Jesus, what is, what is your purpose? Where is your purpose? Why can't I see it? And there are times that we come to desperation in our own faith, just like John. And we say, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, what is your purpose in this? And tonight, quite simply, this passage reminds us that Jesus isn't silent. That Jesus isn't blind. And he certainly isn't powerless. Jesus may not always answer directly. But my friends, he does answer. Time and time again. Again, as we look at our own church family, we see him answering miraculously. Pastor just enumerated just, just the blessing of having Mrs. Bear back with us. The blessing of John Washburn's grandfather. And we could just talk about all the times. We could fill the rest of the hour with all the times that he has done that personally in my own life. So he may not always answer right away and he may not always answer in the way that we want to, but my friends know this, that Jesus answers according to his purposes. And our own church family stands as, a, as an incredible testimony. Every time someone is born again and placed into our own church family, it is an incredible testament to the reality that Jesus is working again and again, and again, and again, and again, isn't it? It's a glorious reminder for us. Pastor started us a long time ago, sending out the, the new birth announcements. And I hope, I hope when you see those, it's not just another piece of spam <laughs> that you delete, but I hope you read the name, and you thank God, and you say, praise Jehovah, for being the one who saves and saves again. Shall you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that though our circumstances may be overwhelming at times, like the storm that picks up the tree and tosses its useless log to the ground, our God has a purpose for the little reeds. In the storm, we may bend and we may blow and we may wonder what in the world is going on. But oh, you help us. You help us to trust in you. You help us to take comfort from your word. And you give us an answer. You give us an answer according to your purpose. And I am convinced 
just as John the Baptist was as he as he moves from his doubt in his prison cell to trusting fully in the purpose of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that Jesus, you are still in the business of answering your children. And you are still in the business of gathering together those whom you've died for and love. But you answer not always with an audible yes, if you will, but you do answer according to your purpose. So thank you. Thank you for giving us our Savior. Thank you for giving us our faith. And help us to hear the answers amid life's circumstances. Help us to hear the answers according to your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for staying with me. I appreciate that. I must admit, it's rather lonely just looking at a camera. But know that we love you. Know that we're praying for you. We miss you. And uh, just can't wait to see you. And can't wait to see Jesus together. All right? I got to go. I'm a big basket case when it comes to these kind of things. Pastor Kent's going to make fun of me later. But uh, that's all right. I'll take it. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement that you are to, to me personally and to my family. And uh, we love you so much.